0: Thank
1: you for joining us today for another episode of Making Sense of Money. I'm Andrew Pellegrini, one of your hosts. Last episode, we had two special guests on from the Illinois Treasurer's Office, Fernando Diaz and John Mitchell, who were delightful, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, uh, to talk about 529 College Savings Program. If saving for college, either for yourself or for a loved one, is important to you, make sure to check it out.
2: And I'm Jake Hamilton, Today we're gonna to be talking about retirement in America. It may be a surprise to many of our listeners that there is actually a retirement crisis here in the U.S. today. Uh, we'll talk about why this is considered a crisis and what it means for both you and the country in ways advocates are working to turn this around.
0: And I'm your last host, Nikki Jankola shanks We have with us today one of the biggest advocates for retirement security in Illinois, Courtney Eccles. Courtney is the Director of Secure Choice for the Illinois Treasurer's Office. And just a full disclosure, she is also one of my closest friends. So I am very excited to have her on here. Courtney, can you start us off by introducing yourself? How did you become so passionate about this subject?
3: Sure, I'm happy to. Thank you, Nikki, thank you, Andrea and Jake. Um, it's really nice to be here at talking with all of you guys about Illinois Secure Choice and retirement savings more broadly. Um, I work with the Illinois Treasurer's Office. I'm the Director of Secure Choice. I've been there for about five and a half years. Um, but started working on this program even before that with my previous job at Woodstock Institute. So I confess, I've been working on retirement far longer than I ever thought I would, because it was a path that I uh, didn't always know I was going to go down. But I'm really excited to talk with you guys have become, as Nikki said, very passionate about this program and the, the ways in which we're helping people save for their own retirement and, and build a safety net for their future. Thank you for that little introduction,
1: Courtney. I'm excited to dig into the Secure Choice program a little bit later in this podcast, Uh, but I think it's important that we first start off talking about the state of retirement in America specifically. So according to the 2019 report on the economic well-being of U.S. households in 2019 by the Federal Reserve, 63% of Americans don't think their retirement savings will be enough or aren't sure if it's on track at all. Courtney, can you shed some light on the state of retirement in America today?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to her. I guess I the, the numbers in the situation are somewhat bleak, right, as, as you just indicated. Um, I think there's a lot of, of research and information out there. But ultimately, I think there are a couple of pretty big and complex problems when it comes to retirement savings. So one is we don't have people... We we aren't giving people access, right? So there's already an access gap, which you'll hear folks talk about a lot in this space. Um, And I think second and related to that, even for folks who do have access, i.e. the ability to save, you know, primarily through their employer or through some plan that is offered to them, um, there's the issue of whether people are saving enough. And I think, you know, these are connected, but they're not the same. Um, and so, a lot of what you'll hear me talk about today with secure choice is this access problem, giving people an ability to save. Um, I'm not, I'm not able to solve kind of the full piece of access and adequacy. Um, it's big, it's complex. There's a lot of folks who are working on it, and it's probably going to require a lot of different solutions. So that's kind of the bigger setup, I think, in the in the space.
1: Courtney, I just have a follow up question on that. Do you know what? percentage of consumers do have access to some type of retirement
3: plan option? Yeah, so there's a lot of different data out there. I think folks generally tend to find that nationally, and frankly, it's fairly consistent across the states too, um, it's usually about half of our private sector workers have access and half don't. Again, that'll vary somewhat, right? So in some states, maybe it'll be, you know, a little over half have access and a little less than half don't, but it's a huge number. I mean, I think some reports will, will put it upwards of, you know, 50 million people, right? We're, we're talking about a huge number of, of workers who don't have the ability to save at their place of employment, which is where most people do it, right?
1: It's so much worse than I thought. Like, I've seen some public sector percentages, which is like 80% from what I've mm-hmm. seen, sometimes 70% depending on the report, but 50% of private sector workers is a huge amount of people.
3: Yes, yeah, it is, and it's kind oh of been changing over time, right, it is there are just fewer employers who are offering plans, and and there's a, there's a lot of, again, I say really good data, but really depressing data out there, right, about just, again, the access gap, and that's, that's even before you get to this this idea of adequacy. Are we saving enough? Um, so yeah, it's big, but there are good solutions. There are there are people who are are trying to work on it. I have other depressing numbers here, and then then we'll get to the good stuff.
2: Yeah, that's how we <laughs> like to do the show here, is we Start <laughs> with the scary stuff, and then we'll we'll get into the more hopeful segments later on. So not so so stay tuned, people. It's so coming. keep listening. Yeah, yeah keep listening. But to separate the access and adequacy for a second and focus a little bit on adequacy, is there a recommendation that you would share uh, for how much someone should have saved to retire? Is there a type of formula or general number?
3: Yeah, so this is one where I will I will add the the big old caveat. Like I am not a financial advisor, I don't give financial advice, but I think if you tend to kind of look and see what people say, folks will often sort of land on this idea that someone should have between 70 and 90% of their annual pre-retirement income when they retire. Again, lots of caveats there, right? It's gonna depend on what you expect and want to be able to spend in retirement. It's gonna depend on, you know, how much you may get in social security. I think the other important piece there is when they give you that number of 70 to 90%, the idea is that comes from both social security and whatever you've saved. You know, I I think people often talk about this three-legged stool that's sometimes used to talk about retirement income, and it's, you know, usually what you have through some sort of plan, what you have separate from that in personal savings, and then what you have for Social Security. Um, even if you deviate from that, it's ultimately usually a balance of the two. But that seventy to ninety percent number seems to be what what folks will say, with with the caveats that everyone is individual. And, and
2: and Courtney, just a quick clarifying question here, but when you say 70 to 90%, you mean per year over the amount of years that you have after you retire?
3: Yeah, yeah. So not just 70 90% of one year, but right, 70 to 90% on an annual basis of what you had been earning pre-retirement.
0: Yep. Right. So now that we know ideally, right, some sort of picture of what you should have when you retire, is there any data out there about how much on average Americans actually have saved for retirement?
3: Yes, there's a lot of it, and this is, I think, at least for me, one of the areas where, again, we get into some pretty scary numbers and some, some information where I think it, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that there isn't a retirement savings crisis out there, right? So folks look at it in different ways. Um, for example, you know, the Employee Benefit Research Institute, EBRI, has done um, some research showing that the retirement deficit, i.e. the amount of money that somebody needs and how far we are from that is about $4.3 trillion. So huge and staggering, but that's, I think, a big number and hard to wrap our head around. When you're looking at sort of the median, like how much has the average household or working family saved, uh, the Federal Reserve has done research looking at individuals who have a retirement account, and the the median savings is about $60,000. So that's still not great. And again, that's only looking at the Cohort of the population that actually has an account. Um, for me, the, the scariest and hardest number is research that's been done that takes into account every working age household. And when you look at that median, it's only about $2,500. So we have a long way to go to make sure we're giving people the tools that they need to be able to save. Um, and I, I think, you know, kind of the unspoken piece here is like, why is this important? And at the end of the day, you know, if somebody's working their entire life and they're not able to put money away and save, I think the the ramifications of retiring and relying only on social security, really scary, both for that individual, but also for um, our state and federal safety net programs and what it means to make sure people can retire with dignity, right?
1: It's a lot to wrap your head around, just generally (laughs) as a financial educator. And I primarily deal with, people that are just starting their careers. So we talk about the importance of um, retirement planning and that kind of stuff. And kind of access is sometimes a component of that, but we don't really think it's hard to connect the reality to the education sometimes. I think part of the challenge with retirement planning is that some people don't know where to start and it's sometimes easy for people to delay taking action on it since it's such a long-term goal. You're not thinking about just five or 10 years in the future, especially for the people that I talk to. It's sometimes 20 or 30, or some people are planning 50-year careers, especially in academia. So hopefully Courtney sharing some numbers about what the state of retirement savings looks like in America can help our listeners start thinking about what you may need um, as you start thinking about retirement planning as your overall financial plan. Everyone is gonna have different needs though, just like Courtney said earlier. So you might want to use one of the hundreds of retirement planning calculators that exist out there. And there are literally hundreds There's proprietary ones. There's free open source ones. People create their own and put them on social media like Reddit. (laughs) So there's lots of different tools that you can use. The American Savings Education Council or ASEC uh, has a website with lots of different tools. One of the tools that I used to promote to my students a lot was called the ballpark estimator it's currently under construction, but you can go on that website and kind of see the types of questions that it asks like What do you want to do, not just how much your income is what are some of your goals, if you have existing debts when you retire that might be a consideration for how much you will need to retire so i'm i'm sure there are people listening that may still be thinking okay but isn't social security going to cover all of this? So Courtney, can you kind of
3: enlighten us on how that may not work for everyone? Sure. So yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, you kind of touched on it, right? One of the challenges with retirement generally is that for a lot of people, it's, I mean, well, for everyone, I guess, until you're old and at retirement, it's not the immediate concern, right? It feels far off, it feels distant. How much do we really need? You know, to your point, lots of different ways to look at that and calculate it, but even that is gonna be built in with different assumptions and me imagining what my future self will want or need. And it's just really hard. And, you know, I think I think making it easier for everyone is one of the goals that all of us in this space have. And you'll, you'll hear about that a little bit, at least for Secure Choice later. But, you know, it it makes us all more inclined to go, well, wait a minute, I'm putting away money for social security, so let's just, I've got that. And that's true, and that's good. Um, I think social security is invaluable, but it was never created to be someone's sole source of income in retirement. It was always intended to be, you know, like like I said earlier, a piece of, of a person's income. And so I think the risk is that you know if if that's what you're kind of hoping and relying on the amount that one gets is going to be a lot less than that 70 to 90% threshold in many cases right so i think this this bigger question is you know what do we do to make it easier what do we do to broaden access and how do we help all of us think more about kind of this future self and what that person is going to need and in some ways i would argue how about we not think about it? How about we just set up tools that allow us to do the savings without having to spend a bunch of time on it. So maybe, maybe that's where we're starting to get both with programs like Secure Choice and frankly in the private sector too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think if, if people are you know expecting to re- rely entirely on social security when they're older, it, might, it may come as a shock to them when, when it's less than they might imagine it is. But another government program that people also mention a lot with social security Uh, is Medicare. And like Social Security, Medicare is there and available for retirees. So people over the age of 65, in most cases. However, uh, without digging too much into insurance, that also falls short in regards to what people need, right? Does this add to the retirement crisis also, Courtney?
3: Yeah, so in my non-healthcare expert opinion, you know, I think think that the, the two things I would sort of say is, right, like, yes, this is another big, really important program that is kind of viewed as supplemental in a lot of ways. And it's there because I think we all understand that healthcare needs are kind of uh, front of mind for older individuals, and and they can be really expensive, and it doesn't necessarily seem like that's going to change dramatically or radically in the future, right? So I think the way I view it is, you know, for all of us, for folks who are moving towards and entering into retirement, healthcare is certainly one of the costs that can eat into your savings. And so without having savings, um, yeah, there are, are programs that can help, but oftentimes it's not necessarily everything that
0: one would need. So I think we've pretty much established that there is in fact a retirement crisis in America, just by looking at, as Courtney keeps saying, I have good data, I mean, it's suppressing data, but it's good data to, sh- to show this. that leads us to the question, what can people do about it? And Courtney already kind of started to hint about the three stools of retirement. So let's talk, let's start off by talking about the different types of retirement plans out there. Now there's a lot, but we we will talk generally about some of the most popular. do you want to Go ahead and kind of give us an overview a little bit. I will pull out my educator role
1: and spit the business, so to speak. So there's two really important terms that are used kind of broadly to describe the types of retirement plans that exist. That is defined contribution and defined benefit. So defined benefit retirement plans include things like pensions, which guarantee a specific amount or benefit upon retirement. Where a defined contribution plan includes things like 401k, 403b, IRAs, all those acronyms that you kind of hear thrown out with numbers sometimes, which require the individual to contribute a specific amount, and the benefit relies on the performance of the investments that the retiree has purchased with their savings contributions, in order to come up with whatever the amount will be upon retirement. So. Sometimes an employer will offer a match and the employer provided defined contribution plans, but not always. So there might be a vesting requirement you need to pay attention to if you have a defined contribution plan, which would not allow you to keep an employer contribution until you meet certain criteria. So it's important to you understand what that criteria is when you're taking advantage of those types of employer provided plans so you can get the benefit or get the match if you're taking advantage of it. So as we like to say, always read the fine print, right? And in this case, it means on your vesting requirements so you can keep employer contributions to your retirement plan. So there's two more terms that apply pretty broadly to retirement plans and that's Roth and traditional. So if a plan does not specify that it is Roth, it's probably a traditional plan. Always read that fine print though. I think we briefly talked about Roth contributions in the taxes podcast, but if you don't remember or we edited it out, who knows what we did? It was a long time ago and it's pandemic timeline. Uh, That's okay. So Roth plans use post-tax money which means you aren't taxed when you're eligible to receive the payouts from that specific plan, where traditional plans lower your taxable income now, but you'll have to pay for taxes when you retire. There are benefits to both. So you want to maybe contact a financial professional if you have access to both options to see what works best for your individual situation and your future plans,
0: be that career plans or retirement plans. So. Just select whatever's best for you. All right. So thank you, Andrea, for kind of giving us some definitions of key vocabulary there. My Um, pleasure. Now now I'm going to kind of turn it over to Courtney to focus on three of the most popular retirement plans or investment vehicles. 401ks, individual retirement accounts, otherwise known as IRAs, and Roth IRAs.
3: Go ahead, Courtney, take it away. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I think we kind of, for secure choice, sort of bucket these into two different places, right? So the first, a 401k, probably the most popular or I guess most well-known version of an employer-sponsored plan, right? So these are governed by ERISA, which are a set of guidelines at the federal level that document the responsibilities an employer has when offering the plan um, and all the different rules that go along with Specifically a 401k, as well as the other suite of employer-sponsored plans, right? So, when you think about that, it's you know the annual limits for contributions, how much an employer can match, right? There are different rules that govern each of these retirement plans and/or investment vehicles, like you said. So I think the 401k again is just kind of what most people think about when you're thinking about an employer-sponsored plan. So something your employer has control over. Uh, as you mentioned, individual retirement accounts, IRAs are just that. They're separate from an employer. They're owned and controlled by an individual, meaning the person who has the account is the one making the investment decisions. They're the one choosing how much they're contributing. Only an individual is allowed to contribute to their own IRA. You don't get employer matches, things like that. And I think the distinction here is between the traditional IRA and the Roth IRA. And as Andrea mentioned, that's really about um, kind of the, the tax benefits of each. So a traditional IRA, you make that contribution pre-tax, which means you're going to get taxed on it later. And a Roth IRA, those are contributions made post-tax, so you don't get taxed on them later. There Again, there are different limitations here, but IRAs have different annual contribution limits. A Roth IRA in particular, you need to make under a certain amount of money to be eligible to contribute. I think Yeah, you can, we can really dive into the weeds on these, but ultimately, I think for this conversation, it's probably easiest to know IRAs owned by the individual 401k falls into the employer-sponsored plan bucket, if that makes sense. And since I know
1: that there's probably going to be some nonprofit (laughs) listeners, you may have access to a 403b in lieu of a 401k. It's essentially just different numbers because it's different types of employers.
3: Yep, exactly right. Yeah, I should have mentioned 403B nonprofit plan 457 government, right? So there's a lot of different numbers and letters, but those are all plans that fall into that employer-sponsored bucket.
1: All right. So as mentioned earlier, Courtney runs the state, the Illinois State's secure choice retirement program, which is a Roth IRA. Courtney, can you give us an overview of the secure choice retirement program?
3: Yeah. So, like I mentioned earlier, you know, secure choice, I think, at its core, is really about addressing the access gap in Illinois. So we looked at research that was state specific a number of years back and found, you know, like I like I had mentioned earlier, that about half of our private sector workforce didn't have access to an employer-sponsored plan. And we just, you know, I, I guess one thing we didn't touch on earlier, but that I think is important to mention here is, yes, a person who doesn't have a plan at work can certainly go out and open their own IRA with a private sector financial manager of some kind. That's totally doable. Lots of people will, um, but the fact is the majority of people won't. Usually IRAs are opened by folks who also have a plan at work. Um, you're just much more likely to save if you have access to a plan where you're making contributions through your payroll, you're not thinking about it, it just happens. So. Secure Choice is really focused on making it incredibly easy for a worker to save, doing it through payroll, but at the same time, not putting additional administrative or financial or legal burdens on employers. And so what we do through this program is we say, for employers of a certain size in Illinois, if you aren't offering your own employer-sponsored plan, then you need to facilitate Secure Choice for your employees. You need to let your employees save through payroll into their own accounts so that they're putting away their own nest egg for retirement. And we can talk a little bit more about the details, but kind of at its core, that's really what it's about. Making it easy to save for a worker without putting a bunch of extra responsibility on an employer.
2: Gotcha. Thank you, Courtney. And, and just to go a little bit more into the background too, could, so when did this law pass? And could you tell us a little bit about how it came to be and the stakeholders that helped make it all happen?
3: Yeah, so Secure Choice passed in 2015. Uh, it was an initiative that you know went for a, a couple of years in the General Assembly before it before it passed. The main sponsors were Senator Daniel Biss and Representative Barbara Curry. Not, neither of whom are in the legislature anymore, but certainly were were the champions at the time. And a lot of the organizations that you guys may have had on the podcast before, or or may work with in in other ways, Woodstock Institute. Uh, the Shriver Center, the Illinois Asset Building Group, Heartland Alliance, AARP, uh, Small Business Majority, a lot of folks who kind of work in the consumer protection space or the asset building space were were the big champions behind the initiative. And again, it was really this this focus on let's give people access. At a minimum, we ought to give people the option to save and to do it easily. And also, I think, again, kind of early on, a recognition that, that we needed to do something because this is just a complex problem that folks aren't necessarily going to solve on their own. Um, so that's really where it started. The program is managed by a seven-person board. The treasurer serves as chair of that board, which is why you know we at the treasurer's office kind of do the administration and overall work on behalf of the board, which ultimately oversees the program, makes all of the financial and fiduciary decisions. And so I think one kind of fun story Treasurer Frerichs at the time that the bill was moving through the General Assembly was a state senator. So he had the opportunity to vote in support of the bill um, when he was in the Senate and then became treasurer thereafter and, and has had the opportunity to really kind of spearhead implementation and rollout of the program. So something that, that has been very close to him throughout his time, both as a senator and as as treasurer and in the role that he plays as as um, chair of the Secure Choice Board. So. The board got started in late 2015 for a program that's totally brand new that requires some work, took some time to figure out all the different components, get the structure set up, find a financial services partner to do the administration record keeping. Because I should make note, I'm sure there will be listeners who are like, what in the world is the state of Illinois doing running a new retirement program? But actually, I think an important caveat here is that this is certainly a a public-private partnership. So we work very closely with a private sector financial services partner that operates 401ks and IRAs uh, for thousands of people across the country. They serve as the record keeper. So they do all of the client services. They work directly with our investment managers. They do all of the administration. I am a team of two within the treasurer's office, and we work quite closely with our partners, obviously. So uh, that is a a long-winded explanation of the work that went into it. The program officially launched with a pilot in the spring of 2018. Um, And then we had three different rollout waves for the employers to get themselves registered and and up and running.
0: And I um, actually was working at the Treasurer's Office at the time that Secure Choice was just getting started. So I've gotten to see, it's very cool to see how (laughs) the challenges in the beginning, and now now it's this program that's running and working. So let's start kind of by looking at how the program actually helps employees. I know Secure Choice is an automatic enrollment program. So can you explain to us what that means? Why, why automatic?
3: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think this, this is kind of one of these features that has really been gaining traction across the board, right? So auto enrollment features or automatic enrollment is something that a lot of private sector 401ks use as well because it's built on this idea that retirement is somewhat complicated. It's easily overwhelming and most people want to do it but sometimes just get stuck figuring out the details of what they want or where they want their money to go or how much so on and so forth. So the idea of auto enrollment is just to make it easy to say, hey, if you know that you want to save for retirement then just don't do anything. And we've got some defaults in place for you so that you will be able to save and you can make decisions later on if you want to or not, but by doing nothing, you're able to get the ball rolling. So with Secure Choice uh, for folks who are um, auto-enrolled, the defaults that we have in place, it's a 5% contribution rate into a default target date fund. And what that means is a fund that's based on a person's age um, and projected date of retirement and it and your money goes into that, the fund itself kind of changes automatically over time. So it's got a little bit more risk when you're younger and slowly but surely gets a little bit more conservative as you get closer to retirement age to protect all that money that you've both saved and then earned. And the beauty of all of this is it's a, a plan set up so that you don't have to do a whole lot and you're still putting your money away. Um, so that's kind of the automatic enrollment nature of the program of course i I should say and, and make very clear this is still a voluntary program so your your default if you do nothing is that you can start saving but we also make it really easy for folks to opt out it's very clear and upfront. if now is not the right time for you if there are reasons that you don't want to be saving in secure choice that's fine we don't want to trick anyone into doing it and we don't want to make it hard so auto enrollment With an opt-out that someone can do before the program starts or at any point in time along the way. So just to clarify, any
1: employees at a participating employer is Mm -hmm. automatically enrolled, be it the organization enrolls into the program or the organization has already been participating in Secure Choice and they hire on a new employee. It's auto-enroll in. That's correct, right?
3: That is correct, yeah. Yeah, and it can, I can touch a little bit. I know we were planning to kind of talk about the employer role later on. I can touch on that now just to say the, the way that it works operationally, you're exactly right. When an employer kind of initially starts facilitating secure choice, they'll add their employees. And what that means is they'll they'll give the program just a, a file of employees. And then we as the program are responsible for saying, here's what Secure Choice is, here's how it works. And there's a, a, it's called a 30 day opt out period, basically says, if you don't want any part of this, we've got a window of time before any contributions or accounts are officially opened that people can just opt out right away. If they start saving and then decide a few months later or a year or two later that they don't want to, they can opt out then too. So it's a process that starts and then yes, for any new employee, they would just get added in and would again, have that opt out window that we think is really important so that if you don't want any money to start, you can opt out before it, before it even begins.
1: So along with the automatic
3: enrollment,
1: there's also automatic savings amounts. Um, do employees have any control over how much they put in each month or over their investment options?
3: Yes. So obviously with auto enrollment, we need to have some sort of default so that there's an automatic thing that you start doing if if the individual doesn't take a specific action, and that's what I had mentioned earlier, a 5% contribution into a target date fund, Uh, but absolutely, these are owned by the individual, and so they can increase or lower their contribution amount at any point in time, and they can also choose a different fund option. Um, We have a pretty limited set of funds for secure choice. In addition to the target date funds, we offer a growth fund, which is a little bit more aggressive, a conservative fund, which obviously is a little bit more conservative, and then a capital preservation fund, which is obviously focused on preserving the initial capital or contributions of the saver. It's a really limited lineup uh, intentionally. Again, this all sort of goes back to this idea that too many choices, really overwhelming, We want to make sure we're giving people kind of a core set of options uh, without having so many that it kind of leads to a decision paralysis. So absolutely, a saver could choose to make a different allocation for their investments or choose a different contribution amount if they want to. Could they skip a
1: month? Let's say like income volatility is a big issue, especially in the U.S. workforce, and uh, they need some more lunch money this
3: pay period, can I skip a period? You know, I will tell you, I feel over the last five years, I've been asked almost every question that is out there and I'm not sure I've ever been asked if someone can skip a single pay period. So (laughs) that's awesome. So what I would say, so the way it works is you can always go in and there's kind of two different mechanisms you could opt out entirely but the other thing that people will do is they will set their contribution rate to 0 and and we sort of see that as an intention of i want to still be in the program but i don't want to contribute right now the the caveat i would add there and i think this is kind of similar to a lot of programs is you know when you go in and set that change we always have to acknowledge that this may take a pay period before it takes effect because we don't you know somebody might change something on a Wednesday not realizing that even though they get paid on Friday, their employer did payroll on Tuesday, right? So I, I think the, the reason I would, would hesitate to say like they can do it on a pay by pay period is that depending on when you as a saver make that adjustment, you do need to sort of allow at least a pay period of time. But I think the longer the longer sort of version of this is people can always set their default rate to zero and they can always put it back up to something else. And ideally that would allow for some of those volatility bumps like you were saying. Yeah, I, I think especially right now when
1: people are anticipating possible months of income volatility, just having that option helps them get through tough times.
3: Yeah, and the other thing I would say on that, and, and I, I know we may at some point touch on obviously kind of the pandemic and its effect on secure choice in workers, Going back to this concept of the Roth IRA, we were really intentional about choosing that vehicle uh, for a couple of reasons. But one of the key uh, reasons is that because these are post tax contributions, a saver always has access to what they put in at any time with no penalty, right? Um, So if you put in $100 two months ago, and you have some sort of issue and something comes up, you can pull those $100 out and there aren't any penalties for doing that. None? And that's that's a key piece of a Roth. And I think this goes to what you're saying, right? And and it's, that's a question we get a lot. And it's, it's sort of that certainty that, you know, these are retirement accounts, obviously we want folks saving for retirement, but people's kind of comfort in knowing that they can take out their contributions if they need them is definitely something that I think has kept people in the program so slightly different than where you started but I, I think totally connected to this idea of recognizing where our savers are at and and what they might need thank you sure
2: yeah I think I think uh, my takeaway there is that like some people might be like whoa 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 the government's making me do something but there's still they still have so much agency in what they can do with the program it's just getting the ball rolling for them. They can stop it if they want to, they can up their contribution, they can lower it, whatever works best for them at the time. And like you said, they still have access to that money. If an emergency or something comes up and they've already, especially in a Roth, they've already paid taxes on it. So they don't have to have any penalties when they take that money back up if they do need it for something else.
3: Yep, absolutely.
2: Mm -hmm. So the next question I would ask is do all employees just in general qualify for secure choice?
3: Yes, the only limitation here is that it's a program for individuals 18 years or older. So any any adult who's working and has an employer that's facilitating the program, regardless of whether they're full-time or part-time, is eligible to to participate. And that was really important to us because I think, you know, one of the areas where um, secure choice is really great is that it doesn't matter if you're full-time or part-time, there are no sort of minimum qualifications to make you eligible. If your employer is facilitating and they need to cover all of their employees
0: so to go off of that what about gig workers are they considered part-time or you know, how does that fall in
3: yeah and so i don't want to delve too much into into an area where i'm not a, a full expert right so employees are considered individuals who have w-2 wages allocated to the state right and so there's a difference between 1099 contract workers and employees with W-2 reported wages. Um, and so that is that is a distinction. The thing I would say is that <laughs> right before the pandemic kind of hit in full force back in early March, we did open the program for self-enrollment. It's different, right? It's not something that's done through your employer, but you know, we, we did really want to say, look, there's a lot of gig workers out there who may want access to something like this. Um, and, you know, Secure Choice might be a program that they want to be a part of, and so we, we have enabled that self-enrollment. It's not done through the employer, but we wanted to make sure that folks, regardless of whether they are, you know, self-employed or a 1099 worker, right, that they have access to something like this, too, if they want it.
0: So, basically, what I've learned through this is that as long as you're over 18, In Illinois, we're not speaking for all all the states here, in Illinois, if you're over 18, you have a part-time job or full-time job, your employer should either be offering you their own retirement program or they should be offering you Secure Choice.
3: If you work for an employer that has 25 or more employees. So that's that's one of the pieces for which employers in the state of Illinois right now are facilitating the program, when the legislation passed, it was based on size. So every employer in Illinois that has 25 or more employees and has been in business for at least two years.
0: Yep. Yep. So I know we, we talked about gig workers and that that plays in, but also just in general, people change jobs throughout their life. They go to different companies, especially at, you know, in these times with everything being so uncertain. So what happens to your secure Choice account if you leave your job. Great question.
3: So uh, a couple of different paths here. Secure Choice is portable for every employer that fa- that is facilitating the program. So what I mean by that is, you will you as an individual will always only have one Secure Choice account. If you are working for an employer who's facilitating the program, you leave and you go work for another employer facilitating the program. The really cool thing is. When you get added into the, when you get added back in by that new employer, we don't create a second account for that same person, they get connected to their original account and then just start contributing from there. And that's one of the things I think where we have a real advantage over what you might find in the private sector where, you know, you can have someone who has a bunch of different 401ks that are never connected and one of the challenges right that people are trying to address is helping people, one, not lose those accounts, and two, figure out how to kind of best move them along. So this is a place where Secure Choice is has really been able to sort of say, you should only ever have one account within our program, regardless of how many different facilitating employers you might work for. Um, connected to that, not exactly your question, but we have a lot of people who work multiple jobs at the same time, right? If you work in retail or you work um, for restaurants, you may have a couple part-time jobs, and again, Secure Choice makes it easy. You have one account. Um, We have thousands of savers right now who are connected to multiple employers at the same time. And again, because they have the control over this, we have some folks who contribute from both of those employers. We have some who are contributing from just one and from the other have opted out and they have that ability to do it. But for us, it's really about one account in all the different ways to make it a lot easier to track. To your, to your point again, if you move from an employer who has secure choice to an employer who maybe is offering their own plan, then it's really up to the individual. They can leave their account there, let it sit and grow. They can even make contributions separately by linking a bank account, or depending on what their employer's rules are, they can choose to roll over their funds. And that's gonna be dependent on you know whether the new plan that they have takes rollovers in or, or not. but. That was kind of long-winded. I hope I got it. I got it. Your uh, your initial question. No, you definitely you definitely did. Thank you. I was actually going to ask about
1: if you um had an IRA and you finished working for an employer that had a Secure Choice program and you wanted to roll it over to an IRA, if that was an option.
3: Yeah. So on our end we offer we facilitate rollovers in and rollovers out right so we you know if, if there are particular people who need to move their money out so on and so forth that's all stuff that can be that can be done cuz at the end of the day these are iras right They're, we we have not added on new or different rules they follow all of the same rules and allowances based on the federal regulations that govern them
1: so do people have to actively manage their investments and their account or does, is there some robot that does that for you? I'm a, personally, I'm a lazy investor. I'm a lazy saver. I like to set it and forget it. Let me know if that can happen in your program, Courtney.
3: <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, like, like we were saying earlier, we are all about the set it and forget it mentality. Um, I, I too fall into that camp. So no, I think the, the the easy answer is for folks who do nothing, money goes into the target date fund, it does its work for them over time. They don't even have to think about it. They can forget it's there and be happy about it later on, right? If they want to be a little bit more active in their choices, they can make those other, those other selections from the funds that we offer. I will say, kind of separate from individual uh, selection of funds, there's more information on our program website, but all of the funds that we use are passively managed funds with investment managers that folks have heard about. Our target date funds are the life path series from BlackRock, but then we also use um, State Street and Schwab, right? So these are well-known highly regarded investment managers that are, that are operating and managing the, the fund options within the portfolio.
2: And another thing we wanna ask is, nobody likes, pay, nobody likes paying fees or anything like that. So, but, but we know that there are fees associated with investments. So what are the type of fees that are associated with the secure choice?
3: Sure. So I guess the sort of two pieces here, there are no fees for employers. And again, we'll we'll talk about that probably a little bit later when we talk about how this works on the employer side. For savers, there is one fee. It's 75 basis points. This might be a place where we're like, what does that mean to regular people? So 75 basis points is uh, like the way to think about it is 75 cents for every $100. And so it's just a small piece of the total amount that someone has saved. Um, And it's done that way because it's an all-in cost, right? So that includes the investment management fee and all the administrative fees. There's nothing else separate and apart from that. It's one basis point fee all in together, as opposed to like a quarterly admin flat fee coupled with an investment fee coupled with something else. So it's all bundled together in one. And again, on, on the program website, there's some pretty clear explanations about what the fees are, what basis points mean t- in, in layman's terms um, and, and how they work for the, for the accounts.
0: So what if you're a listener and now you're thinking to yourself, hi, hey, I wonder if my job has this program. Was I auto-enrolled? where can they find out if they have an account or not? And is there any way, anywhere that they can go for help? Yeah, absolutely.
3: So uh, I think especially if someone's listening and they're like, huh, I think my employer has at least 25 employees. And so this is something that they should be a part of. A couple of different things. One, so you can check with your employer and say, hey, are we in Secure Choice? They can also visit our website, which is ilsecurechoice.com. And I'll say that later too, so that the listeners all hear, ilsecurechoice.com. It's where everything is, right? That's where our employer portal is. That's where individual savers can go to log in on their accounts. But that's where you can look to get more information. I would say if you are someone who thinks maybe you should have gotten information about this. So every individual should have been contacted by mail or email. A variety of times you get information on the program, but sometimes people move, sometimes their mail doesn't follow them. Um, So they can always contact our client services number to find out more. And I can give that right now if you want. For our savers, it's 855-650-6913. It's also on the website right there. So people can look at it, feel a little bit like I'm Reciting some sort of commercial here with the phone number, um, but the the whole point is, you know, people can check online, they can call um, our number, or they can ask their employer. Um, any of those are great ways to figure out, you know, if, if Secure Choice is something they have access to.
2: We always encourage promotion, so <laughs> sell your program, <laughs> i we'll give put those in the show again notes. Later. Yeah, yeah,
3: that's
1: we'll right. put in the
2: show notes for for the listeners as well.
3: <laughs> great.
1: So let's talk about the program from the employer side. Uh, I think you talked about a little bit already what types of um, employers should be providing this if they don't already have an option available. But can you just revisit that for us?
3: Yes, I'm happy to because we get this question a lot. So which employers are covered by Secure Choice? Super simple answer if they have 25 or more employees, full-time or part-time, if they've been in business for two years, and if they're not already offering a qualified plan. And that last point is key, right? Because for employers who already have a plan, that is wonderful, that's great, we want them to keep doing it. This program is really focused on those employers who aren't offering a plan for whatever reason, right? Because I think that the thing that it's helpful to remember is that you know there, there are some costs, there are some administrative requirements, to offering an employer-sponsored plan, and that's just not something that every employer can do or may want to do. And so, Secure Choice is really meant to be that alternative.
1: So, I have a, a clarifying question. I'm not as familiar with the legislation as you and Nikki are, obviously. But does does this plan need to be offered to any employed individual residing in Illinois, or is it through any employer
3: whose headquarters is in Illinois? That is a, it's a great question because it's based on where the employee is paying W-2 wages, right? So if you are employed in the state of Illinois, you have access to the program because you're working for an employer that's, that's here. So we don't, we don't have any purview or control over folks who may go work in another state, but if it's an employer that's in Illinois and doing business in Illinois, then any of their workers are eligible to save in the program.
1: The reason I asked is because we have heard of some employers hiring for a job in the state of Illinois but using legislation through their headquartered state like in Minnesota or something to delegate all of their policies like Mm. and so I was just curious.
3: Yeah I mean I, I guess I can't comment on those specific examples but if you are an employer who's got individuals that are reporting W-2 wages to the state of Illinois, and you have at least 25 of those people, then you fall under the Secure Choice umbrella.
2: That's good to know. And Courtney, I know you said earlier that employers don't have any fees, but does this cost the employer anything at all, like to set up, enroll, or any other, I don't want to call them hidden fees, but things people might not think of?
3: Yeah. So I think it's really easiest to just walk through what the process looks like for an employer. You know, as I said, there are no, there are no direct costs or charges of any kind ever, right? Not initially, not later for an employer. I think what we've seen in operation, right? Having worked with thousands of employers now to get them up and running is that it takes a little bit of time. And of course, you know, that, that is a resource of some kind, right? But it's a super limited amount of time. And at the end of the day, I think we'll, you know, you know, it doesn't really cost them anything. And once they're up and running, it's really just part of, a, of the payroll process that employers do on a regular basis anyway. So the way it works is uh, they register for the program, which is done online. We even pre-populate uh, fields for them with contact information, all that stuff. They can change it if they want to, but our goal is to, to make this as easy as possible for employers. We know how many things they already have on their plate. We don't want this to be difficult. We want it to be fast and efficient. Once they register, which usually takes a couple of minutes, you know, set their username and password. The next step for an employer is to provide us uh, with that employee list, as I said. Usually it's it's uploading an Excel file through the secure portal. We as the program need that because under federal law, we have to have certain information about a person in order to open an IRA on their behalf. Uh, but again, all of that is done by the program. So once we get that Excel file, we communicate with employees. We give them program information. We handle all the opt-outs, any changes, any questions. All of that is funneled through our um, customer service center. And we do have resources for employers to say, hey, you know, if you want to put up this poster in your break room, it's got the employee line on it right here. So that way you can just direct folks there. Um, And what we've heard by and large is that most employers don't hear much directly from their employees. They reach out to the program. And after that process, the last thing an employer does is, once that 30-day opt-out window has moved forward, they just remit the appropriate or they make the appropriate contributions as part of their payroll. So we don't, we don't have any requirements about how that works. The idea is that if you pay your employees monthly or bi-weekly or twice monthly, however you do it, you just make that appropriate contribution amount um, when you're running payroll. The same way that you remit federal taxes, state taxes and whatever other items you have as part of your payroll process. I'm sure a lot of this
1: sounds confusing for some employers. Is there anywhere that they can go for
3: help? Absolutely. And what I will say in practice, right, we've, again, worked with thousands of employers across the state. Usually when we're talking with folks, there's kind of this initial reaction of, wait, what is this? How does this work? What do I have to do? And I think once we get a chance to say, here's what it is, here are the few steps most employers are kind of like, all right, yep, I can get this done, not bad, easy enough, move along. One of the things that we've done is created an employer onboarding team within our uh, customer service center. And the reason I'm saying that here is if we have employers who are listening, all you have to do is register. They'll get the link, they'll get the letter. Once they register, we've got a specific team uh, that will reach out to them within a couple of days. And it's a single point of contact throughout the enrollment and payroll period, so they can say, hey, do you need help uploading that file? Do you have any questions on this? Do you want us to set a reminder so that 30 days from now, you know when to run your first payroll? Um, And we found that's super helpful for employers. They love having just one point of contact, someone they can reach out to if they have questions. And employers kind of use that in varying ways. Some are like, nope, I've got this, leave me be. Others definitely want to have those, those points of contact as they do the uh, employee ad and then the first time they they make the payroll contribution to make sure they understand how that works. Um, so that's one key piece. Just register and we will have someone proactively reach out to an employer. But of course, uh, we also have a designated employer line on our website. There's a bunch of information there. And we also have the phone number, which is 855-650-6914. But like I said, it's on our website. Um, and we've got a lot of information there. Again, this for us, this program is only effective if we can make it really simple for employers. So it's something we've been really focused on and has spent a lot of, of time trying to continually improve even since the program first launched.
2: That's great. And Courtney, how many people are currently signed up through the Illinois Secure Choice program? Are there any other statistics you could share, like how much people have saved or how many businesses are using the program total?
3: I'm happy to. And I'm going to give you guys my cutting edge daily information, uh, which I suppose by the time this airs, will not be breaking news. Yeah, breaking news right here, except in a few weeks, not quite as breaking. So we have uh, just over 82,000 savers um, who together have saved a little over $51 million for retirement. And for me, like, the, the amount is less important, frankly, but I think still a huge milestone when you think about the types of workers, the types of savers for most of our savers, it's probably the first connection they've had to a plan. And you know, the program is just about just a little over two years old. And so $51 million is a lot and makes a huge difference for that group of folks, for sure. Um, some of the other numbers, so we have just over 6,000 registered employers a little, about 2,800 of those are making active payroll contributions on behalf of their employees. So like I said, we've got a lot who sort of register and then we're helping them make their way through the process. They've got to wait that 30 days for the opt out window. Um, so slowly but surely all getting to the point of being fully up and running. A couple other numbers I like to highlight, folks are usually saving on average about 95 to $100 a month. We look at kind of the monthly figure because people get payroll at different times. Some people get it weekly, some people you know, only do it once a month. So that's kind of a, a, a nice snapshot of about how much um, the average saver is, is putting away. And then our average account balance is uh, a little over $620. And so again, remember these are gonna be, it's an average. Uh, so we've got some folks who've been in you know, since the first few months back in the fall of 2018 we have some folks who were just added last week, but that number has definitely steadily been been rising um, and we're excited to see that. And then another one folks ask about a lot is the contribution rate, which is the on average 5.03%. In other words, basically 5% unsurprising since that's what the default is, right? So I think that's just one where it's like, yep, most people stay at the default. We've got some people who move up and down, uh, but generally speaking, the vast majority of folks just stay you know, where, where they
0: started. I have to say that's very impressive when you think that this program just launched two years ago. So kudos to you and the treasurer's office.
3: Thank you. Um, yeah, and I, I think the other thing, um, you know, again, we'll, we'll probably talk about this later, but, you know, two years old, the first year was our launch year and the second year was during the pandemic. So, you know, I think all the more reason to really look at these programs as hopeful ways to help people start saving.
0: And it definitely shows that people keep it at that five percent, like that auto enrollment really makes a difference. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, is Secure Choice something that's unique to Illinois, or are there other states that have similar programs? There
3: are definitely other states. This is this is a solution that I think a lot of states have started taking a very, uh, very high level of interest in. Right. So, Illinois Secure Choice is not alone, there are a couple other states that are actually up and running right now. So Oregon and California both have programs, Oregon saves and Cal savers. There are a number of other states that are in the process of implementing and will likely launch programs within the next year. Uh, Colorado, Maryland and Connecticut fall into that bucket. New Jersey also has legislation, they pass legislation and, and they're in the process of implementing. And then there's kind of a slew of different states that are at varying points of exploring similar programs. So a lot of states have put together a task force that have issued reports recommending similar programs. They still need to pass them through their legislature, but you've got Wisconsin, um, Virginia, actually their house just passed legislation very similar and and would need to pass their Senate, but just generally a lot of interest. I would say if, if folks are interested, the Center for Retirement Initiatives out of Georgetown has just a fabulous website that shows all of the different state activity. Um, And I, I don't quote me on this number, but I think it's something close to like 40 plus states have taken action in some form or introduced legislation in some form. So it's, you know, I think it's something that a lot of state policymakers are looking at and saying, we really need to try and figure out what we can do to reduce our access gap.
1: Very cool. I think it's very impressive that your, your program has done so much in such a sm- short amount of time. So hopefully that paves the way for other states' success. The pandemic has obviously caused a lot of economic hardships for people across the country. What type of impact do you think it's made on the program, even though it's so young, it's hard to tell?
3: Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you asked that. I think it would be sort of strange, right, to to talk about this program but not touch on the pandemic and and the impact it's had on employers and workers across Illinois. So, a couple of different things I would say, broadly speaking, you know, when when we think about Secure Choice, it's important to remember that a lot of the employers and workers that we have are the very same employers and workers who were hardest hit throughout the pandemic, right? huge portion of our employers are restaurants, bars, retail. So the folks who've either closed or severely limited their hours, had to reduce staff numbers, things like that. So we, we tried to be really, really conscious of what our employers and workers were experiencing over the last year. We worked with a lot of employers who were maybe somewhere in the process of getting enrollment to help them either pause that or you know only enroll the employees they had, but to then plan to kind of come back and remind them later when they're fully opened to enroll the remainder of their employees. Uh, We did a lot of communication on our website and training with our customer service team to remind savers, what we talked about earlier, right? That this is their money. These are their accounts. They own them. And if they need access to those dollars that we were here to help them with that, right? So for us, it was really about what are the important messages to make sure we're sharing with our employers and what are the important messages to make sure we're sharing with our workers? Um, So I think that was kind of first and foremost, one of the things that we wanted to make sure we did. The other thing I'll say though, is that every single month of 2020, so including all of the months that we have been in the pandemic, we saw an increase in the number of new savers that we had and an increase in our assets. So our program grew every single month, despite everything that was happening. And I think for me, that's a really telling sign that even within all of this, people still want to be saving. Perhaps now more than ever, we all understand the importance of that. And you know, I think employers, even those who are dealing with all of the stresses that may have arisen, still want to give their employees that access, right? And I, I think that those are just some of the very positive things for us to kind of take away with with all of this, and then the last thing I'll say kind of goes back to, to that number I highlighted for you earlier, right? Over six hundred dollars saved. You know, these are retirement accounts, but they were designed as Roth IRAs, and so I think this idea that we can continue to expand and help more people have some savings, some safety net. You know, I think there's there's obviously a real value in that. We knew that before all of this, but I think the pandemic has really highlighted just how important it is to give people access and. One of the things we've talked about a lot and continue to think about is that it's probably pretty likely that our workers who had secure choice were in better shape than maybe the ones who, who didn't, especially if they work for a lot of these impact industries. So, you know, we're continuing to see growth. We're continuing to work with our employers. We are very excited, as I'm sure everyone is, um, for things to continue to get better and open and improve. But we still, we still really saw the, the huge value of the program even over the last, the last year.
1: absolutely
2: yeah and I'll I'll echo what Andrea and Nikki have said Nikki have said um, that's just really impressive what you guys have been able to do in such a short amount of time but looking past the year 2020 I mean we are in 2021 now so I think we can maybe look ahead (laughs) to some better days what's next for secure choice you guys even have a new legislative bill this cycle right is that correct we
3: do yeah I mean we are Oh, we are really hopeful for 2021, like I'm sure everyone is. So yeah, you know, we are still still really focused on working with our employers who have registered, um, making sure we get them, like I, I like to say, across the finish line, right, get them um, up and running fully and, and making those payroll contributions on behalf of their savers. But yeah, the other big thing for us is we are really excited to try and expand the program to smaller employers in Illinois. I think one of the things that we've realized is that you know, you, you pass a new bill, it's never been done before, it doesn't exist, and people understandably are really conscious of like, okay, well, how is this going to impact smaller employers versus larger? And now we know it's really easy, it works, and actually smaller employers are the ones who would probably benefit even more from a program like Secure Choice, where, you know, when you have smaller staff, the likelihood that you have all of your employees wearing several hats already is, is quite high. Um, you don't have some sort of H.R. benefits expert, necessarily. Um, and for those employers who do want to offer a plan, when you're smaller, sometimes the cost can be higher um, for either you or your, your employees. So all that being said, our goal um, this coming legislative session is to make Secure Choice available to smaller employers and to sort of put that blanket over everyone and say, if you uh, don't offer your own plan, then at least facilitate Secure Choice for your workers, because by expanding that, we give that that added benefit and access to likely hundreds of thousands of private sector workers in Illinois who still don't have it. So that's the big goal um, for our office, for the program, and we're pretty excited about it. Understandably. <laughs> yes. We want everyone to have access, right? Like we're coming full circle, I suppose, back to the beginning, but um, they're, you know, having a threshold of 25 or more Uh, employees likely means that we've still left off about half of that population in our state. And so really, if the goal is to close the access gap, we need to give everybody the coverage.
1: Well, and I imagine if there are any uh, small business owners listening, they may be thinking about how including secure choice may help them be more competitive with offering a benefit package to potential employers. Absolutely. Recruit those good quality employees.
3: Absolutely. I mean, we don't we don't want smaller employers to be at a disadvantage. We want them to be able to uh, facilitate the program just the same as larger employers. And we don't want workers who have seven colleagues to somehow be at a disadvantage to a worker that has fifty colleagues. We want everyone to be able to save, and we don't want any of our employers, you know. We'd, again, we'd love for people to offer an employer sponsored plan. That's a great solution. There are huge advantages, but anyone who can't or isn't able to, we want them to have a reasonable solution as well.
0: And I think it's great that you guys really designed this with the businesses also in mind. So small businesses, like this does not increase, this does not cost them anything, like any physical money out of their own pockets, which I think mm-hmm. is great. So um, one last question for you, Cordy. If you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice regarding retirement, what would it be?
3: I thought about this a little bit. Uh, I, feel, I feel like we've covered a lot of, a lot of different things um, during our discussion today. but I think you know one, one of the things we sort of started with and, and has popped up throughout the conversation is just the complexity that a lot of us might feel when it comes to retirement overall, right? What do I pick? When do I start? How much do I do? And I think the advice I would say is if you have something at work, do it. Because the good news is that we're trying to broaden access and we're also trying to make it easy. And that's that's not unique to secure choice. It's happening in the private sector as well. And so just sort of getting over that hurdle of worrying about what sorts of decisions, I, I think more and more plans are making it easier and easier. So my, my recommendation would be if you have access just start saving and you'll find that it's it's a little bit easier than you might have might have first realized especially if it's set it and forget it my favorite exactly and more po- more folks are moving in that direction i think which is which is good reducing decision fatigue is
1: really powerful in a lot of ways yep Absolutely. not just financial
2: and i'll add you know just start doing it and <laughs> The power of compound interest will help you out in the long run. So if oh, you think yes, it's, it will. if you think it's too late, you're wrong. It's not too late. You can start today or tomorrow or whenever, and it'll help.
3: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. No, we have some really some really powerful testimonials from savers of ours. Uh, one who actually is is a business owner, a, a salon in Bloomington, and she talks about how one she was worried to have to offer this. Realized how easy it was, how great it is, and two, how she is now a saver in it herself and had previously kind of invested all of her money in, uh, in her business, and now she's got a little bit going away to Secure Choice, and she has watched the assets grow, and it's just been kind of this very exciting thing for her. So, you know, we try to remind folks that there are real stories behind all of the sort of numbers and random data I just talked about today. I should have led with, with uh, a story
1: both data and anecdotal stories can be empowering. Absolutely. (laughs) We have both types of listeners on today. So thank you so much for joining us today and talking about Secure Choice Program. It's easy to see that you are very passionate about this subject. And as you're thinking about your future, please look at the retirement options that you have available. I'm talking to the listeners now, kind of moved very quickly into thank you, Courtney, let's talk to the listeners. So again, please look at the retirement options you have available, either through your employer, the Illinois Secure Choice Program, or IRA accounts. Uh, Financial planners can be a good source of information and help with planning if you need that, Uh, but don't be afraid to just get started. Like Jake said, save on your own if you have the means, and Uh, It's a priority for you. Obviously, right now that saving might not be the priority, but and that's okay. You can always look at diversifying your savings vehicles to leverage a variety of different benefits that can help you accomplish your, your savings goals, be it retirement or something else. So just look at what you have available and start doing something, even if it's just researching what your options are
2: yes absolutely andrea and thank you again courtney uh for coming on the show today and to our listeners make sure you check out the show notes for all the related links and everything we talked about with involving secure choice for more information today
0: and i will give my thanks to courtney as well it was fun having you on here um thank you guys. <laughs> on our next podcast we're going to be talking about investing basics so it's this podcast and the previous one on 529 had you asking yourself questions like, huh, what is a mutual fund? <laughs> um, don't miss it, cause we're gonna kinda go back it and, and cover some of those, those basic investment buzzwords. And as always, please remember to subscribe and share Making Sense of Money on Apple Podcasts and Google Play.